The Energy Gang is brought to you by PG&E, driving toward a clean transportation future. In most of the U.S., transportation is the largest single source of greenhouse gas emissions. That's certainly true in California, and it's why PG&E is working hard to make it easier for customers to go electric. Be it new rebates for your next personal vehicle purchase, or support adding charging stations to your next parking lot and electrifying your fleet, PG&E can help individuals, businesses, and cities invest in the right electrified transportation option. To find out more about how you can take your transportation electric, visit pge.com slash gtmev. That's pge.com slash gtmev. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. We saw many of you this last week at the MIT Energy Conference. I was joined on stage with my co-hosts Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah in the wonderful city of Cambridge, Massachusetts. The theme of the show, what will the grid look like by 2040? As a topical show, we don't usually know what we're going to be discussing until a day or two in advance. But the theme of the MIT Energy Conference was tough tech and the 2040 grid. So we decided to take it head on. To start the show, we warmed up and adjusted our brains to the 2040 time frame. So we outlined a few hypothetical scenarios to see which ones we thought were more likely. Then we got a little bit more serious and we outlined a possible future for the 2040 time frame. Catherine looked at policy and politics. Jigger looked at the business environment and... I outlined some technology scenarios, and of course we debated those and talked about their implications. So here we go. We're going to open up the conference doors and let you into our live show, take a seat, and we begin with some of those hypothetical scenarios. So we all know that anything could happen over the next two decades. If we're being asked to predict the future, we might as well get creative with it, right? So I'm going to propose a couple of different scenarios, and you two have to tell me which one is more likely. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. So scenario one, Elon Musk establishes a colony on Mars by 2040, or Tesla no longer exists as a company. <laughs> I think that SEC hopes that he sets up a colony on Mars <laughs> and goes and leads it. So, uh, and. I think Tesla would likely be around in 2040 if he goes to Mars. What do you think a company like... Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, both can be true. Both can be true. What do you think, Catherine? I think that Tesla will no longer exist as a company. Oh, okay. All right. All right. So I guess the, in 2040. The, 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 I know exactly. But this is this brings us to like a more serious question. I mean, the disruptors that we know today. Given the pace of change and the tumult in the energy markets could very well be the disrupted in the not-so-distant future. So how worried should the companies that we know as incumbents or disruptors today uh, be about non-existence in a very short period of time? Well, it should be very worried. I mean, obviously, in the solar industry, I mean, the people who go bankrupt are the folks who have the largest booths on the trade store floor, right? Like, it's like, you know, you just count the amount of square footage that they have, and you're like, okay, that one's going bankrupt. Um, and so, look, it is what it is. It's just, it's, we are in a very fast-paced change time period, and, and so every year, that leadership team has to figure out how to disrupt its own business to stay around. You look at 
um, you look at companies like um, uh, Sun Edison or Solar City or Sunrun or CCR or some of the other folks on that front, and you know you find that not only are different states in the lead, right? So this year it's Massachusetts, next year it's Illinois, the year after that it's something else, so they have to stay on top of that. But then, you know, this year it's residential, and next year it's community solar, and the year after that it's corporate PPAs, right? And so if they don't stay on top of the changing marketplace, then yeah, they get disrupted. Yeah, and I got hung up on the fact that we had to choose. So the colony on Mars, I was saying that that wasn't gonna happen because if you read that Biosphere 2 article in the New York Times a couple of days ago. No, I didn't read it. Oh my gosh, where the cockroaches took over and then Steve Bannon came in. Like, I was like, well, that's not going to happen. That would not turn out well. What in the world are you talking about? <laughs> you just have to read the New York Times. <laughs> Scenario two, the U.S. bans internal combustion engines by 2040, or autonomous cars will outnumber human-operated cars on the roads. U.S. bans ICE. I think that's much more likely. Why? Because I think they're not going to be competitive. Well, it, maybe they'll just be considered quaint, antique, and you're going to get a special license plate to have an internal combustion engine car. But I think that's more likely than autonomous vehicles outnumbering human drive vehicles. Jigger, what do you think? Well, Jay Leno picked electric vehicles, right? Like two weeks ago, Jay Leno even came out and said that. Jay Leno's been talking about electric vehicles for years. Well, you know, he owns a lot of cars. Like, he wants to make sure the, those ICE engines go up in value. Look, I, um, I, I think it's going to be autonomous vehicles, but I think it's because, um, like, as you know, I don't think autonomous vehicles are going to figure out edge cases. I just think it's going to take a very, very long time for people to get comfortable with them doing anything and everything. But I think that autonomous vehicles will make transit agencies remarkably cheap, right? You can imagine, like, where I live in D.C., you could imagine there's only, like, 25 major thoroughfares, you could just see autonomous vehicles going up and down those thoroughfares, you know, in a controlled fashion, you know, within five to seven years, right? And so, so, so if you really want to deal with traffic, um, you have a lot of countries in Asia, for instance, that have taken entire central business districts and banned vehicles in those central business districts and saw huge spikes in business activity. And so you could see some of that um, innovation from Asia coming back to the U.S. and mayors and county officials who are exasperated by traffic and all that stuff to just go whole hog and say, we're going to ban internal combustion engine vehicles or any vehicles, uh, personal vehicles in certain areas and only have autonomous go back and forth. Last one, either or. You will be able to order a drone-delivered and drone-installed solar system from Amazon using only your thoughts or Amazon's quantum computing capabilities will make regional grid operators obsolete. We'll have one supercomputer in the sky that controls all transactions. Well, I'm, I'm in on quantum computing. I'm like... You're all in yeah, on quantum yeah, computing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you're bullish We're on autonomy here. and quantum computing. <laughs> yeah. You'll fit right in here at MIT. Yeah. Well, I was going to go the other way. I was going to have a thought-controlled, like... BB gun to shoot the drones out of the sky <laughs> off of my house. Yeah. Um, no, I, I don't. I think it's fanciful. I don't think drones can carry that kind of weight. So, no. And I don't think solar is going to get like this. I don't think efficient solar is going to get super, super low weight flexible. So. Well, okay. That that brings us to some unforeseen consequences because there are some real lessons behind some of these fantastical scenarios. 
Right now, when we talk about jobs in clean tech, this being one of the greatest economic forces that we can harness, a lot of those jobs are downstream. Um, you know, many of them are high-skilled jobs, so they're much more difficult to automate. But at some point, will one of the more popular jobs, a, a solar installer or a wind technician, will those jobs get automated by, you know, some some big tech company or um, some company we haven't heard of yet? Like, are we at risk of this completely decimating the economic value of the industry that we know today. So it's happening today with old industries, with the coal industry. So we are learning right now how do we transition. And there are a lot of people that are being left behind. So we do have to think of that constantly. Like, how do you bring people along? I think we're right now at a tougher point than we will be because I think we will have already slotted people into the industry and into innovation. But yeah, but, I could see us having another. Job. I mean, no, we're not. But once we figure that out, I think we might be on a path again. By 2040, we may have to do it all over again. <laughs> we are going to take a quick break here before we get into the second half of our show to talk about our sponsor, PG&E. PG&E is really focused on transportation electrification. So now is the time to begin electrifying your fleet of vehicles. And if you're in PG&E's service area, you can take advantage of limited time incentives as part of PG&E's new EV fleet program. Do you operate school buses, transit buses, delivery vehicles, or other smart vehicles? If so, get educated, gain access, and make the smart choice to take your fleet electric. PG&E offers substantial financial, logistical, and construction support for all the electrical infrastructure needed to charge a customer's fleet. And with new commercial EV rates from PG&E, fueling your fleet becomes simpler and likely cheaper. Get in touch with one of PG&E's EV specialists and learn more at pge.com slash gtmev. That's pge.com slash gtmev. And now, back to the live show. Okay, so we've dug into uh, some hypothetical scenarios. Let's get a little bit more serious and try to imagine what the grid itself will look like in two decades' time. And, and maybe this will sort of inform some thinking around the rest of the conversations throughout this event over the next two days. So each of us is going to take um, one particular area and talk about a scenario uh, by 2040 in our area of expertise, and then we're going to debate and discuss it and, and, and understand the, the underlying issues. Catherine, you have devoted much of your career to public policy. What do you think politics will look like on the national and state level in 2040? And let's start with the national level. Okay, great. Buckle up, we're getting on the FERC rocket, um, <laughs> as everybody knows. So I think that by 2040, and I'm an optimist, so this hinges on some really key things happening, one of it, which the, is that people hold their elected officials accountable when it comes to climate change and a transition. Okay, so that's number one. So that's assuming we do that, and we're starting to do that and starting to really ask those questions. So I think that has to continue. But then I could see by 2040, so the wholesale market may really change. We may look more like the market in Texas where there's not a capacity market, there's an energy market, an ancillary services market where everybody can participate and everybody's value is counted for and compensated. So consumers have as much right as a wind turbine to be on the grid and to be paid for the services that that they offer and that they um, deliver to the grid. I also um, 
am hoping that CAFE standards have been, like we've talked about a little bit in the previous segment, the CAFE standards are really ramped up so that EVs of all types, especially heavy duty, are in full force and that those vehicles are really getting out there because remember regulation can spur a lot of innovation and large companies OEMs are really interested in making sure that they have certainty in regulation so that they can innovate and sell so I'm hoping cafe standards tax credits that allow all technologies to take advantage as long as they're low carbon and then continuing R&D and programs like ARPA-E that are really trying to solve gnarly problems and need R&D funding. Now, I think R&D funding is going to come not just from the government, but much more public-private partnerships, like having the private sector and corporates much more involved in that. So those are that's kind of the federal side. I do think that by 2040, we will have had a Green New Deal or we will have given up. Right. So there you go. <laughs> 2040, you're talking tax credits and ARPA-E. You could have picked I know. banning cars. I know where your head is at. It's just I've been doing this a long time. And like, you know, 10 years ago, we were doing the cap and trade bill. So, so like, what I hear you saying is that, like, we're still dealing with incrementalism from now over the next two decades. Yeah, you but if, see if we have a Green New Deal, that may changing. not mean incre incrementalism. I think to get there, yes, we're going to have to take bites, like... Unless something big changes and we put a lot of money into this, we're going to have to just keep slogging. So what gets us to something like the Green New Deal? Is it some kind of uh, catastrophe that changes the political dynamic? We've had catastrophes. That hasn't changed. Those have not necessarily changed the political dynamic. So, so then dynamic. what's the catalyst here? We need a president that cares about this and puts Congress to work, puts every branch of government to work. Puts your shoulders, I used to play ice hockey, puts your shoulders and hips into it. <laughs> yeah. So just keying off of what Catherine was saying, you know, the thing that I find fascinating about where we are today is that detractors of the sort of the new energy vision that we're continuously evolving, um, you know, generally cite sort of impossibly high standards, right? They just say, well, you know, Solar and wind have to be dispatchable. Well, they're increasingly becoming dispatchable. A lot of solar and wind projects actually have battery storage sort of built into them now. Like I think, um, and so I think the bar just keeps getting set higher and higher at a point where the utilities themselves cannot actually meet that bar, but they want us to meet the bar. And then, and then we actually exceed the bar anyway. So I'll give you an example. So in the United States, one of the biggest problems that we have is chronic underutilization of infrastructure, right? So in the 80s, our infrastructure was probably like 81% sort of utilized. Today, it's probably in the 60s, which means that you have all this transmission capacity, all this distribution capacity, all this stuff that is not being utilized, right? Like that is not being, being fully, fully utilized. And so I think what you'll find in Texas is where it'll start because of the wholesale market there. Um, is that renewable energy companies will be asked to become end-to-end -end utilities, right? And so what Texas will say is, look, if you're willing to turn your supply into a brick on this side, which means you can produce power 24-7, and your demand can be turned into a brick, which means you bring DERs and demand response and load control and all the other stuff on this side, and you can link the two together to provide much higher utilization of the infrastructure, we will give you the right to do that. And what you'll find is the renewable energy folks will make 30% more 
revenues by being able to do that because they don't have to pay Morgan Stanley in the middle to do the power trading. They won't have to pay someone else in the middle. They'll just buy a retail electricity provider on this side and they'll have all the wind and solar on this side and they'll even they'll actually even control like on this side they may even just buy people's refrigerators and buy people's like, you know, thermal storage units, right? Like water heaters and and all sorts of stuff. Like Walmart for instance is rolling out thermal batteries for their uh, groceries, grocery stores, right? And Whole Foods is doing the same thing. So you just start buying up all of this stuff on this side just so you can meet supply and demand and fully utilize the grid, right? Because that excess capacity that's not being utilized is free today, right? There's no, right now it's not being utilized. No one's getting paid for it. So I think by 2040, you'll see people providing, saying to renewable energy companies, unless you meet this impossibly high standard, we won't give you what you want. And we'll just say, sure, we'll meet the impossibly high standard. And then those of us who are in the industry will just buy all the components across the chain. And we'll just like, and you see Centrica doing that with the purchase of direct energy, and you see other folks doing it over here. So it's not, we're not actually that far, but what's shocking to me is that the utilities themselves don't want to actually get higher asset utilization out of their assets. And we're going to be asked to do that. Um, but this all depends also on what happens at the state level. We talked a little yeah, bit so about that. Yeah, so let's federal. talk about the state But on the state level, we have the issue of utilities and, and regulatory constructs. And that is going to have to change in, in order for any of this future to happen. Um, and some utilities, we were just at National Grid. I mean, it's a different kind of utility than Dominion or Duke that are fully integrated utilities. But either, something's going to have to change in this. They're either going to have to become Ryers companies or become service providers for lifestyle services, not just for energy. And some of them are going to be able to do it and willing to do it, and some of, it, some of them won't. And it's a matter of really changing the paradigm on the regulatory side so that utilities are rewarded for totally different things. Their metrics are different. They're rewarded for performance, and they're rewarded for low carbon and resilience and the ability to interact with their customers in a positive way, not just when the lights go out or when their bills go out. Well, so what's the pathway for that from, I don't know, 2012 up until... 2015, 2016, we saw a ton of states talking about the utility of the future. Here's how we're gonna develop this new regulatory framework. You saw legislatures get involved to create um, you know, organizations to, to, to look at this stuff or actually put a regulatory process in place. But it, it seems things, things have slowed down or the, shift, the focus has shifted a little bit. No one's taking this on in such an ambitious way like we were talking about four or five years ago. So like, what's the next step to getting to that more ambitious conversation once again? Well, so we need to get good regulators. So we need to work on who is actually regulating. And some regulators are also governed by legislators legislators so we have to get good legislators in place that care about this and then a lot of utilities are not going to survive i mean they're just not going to yeah make the it. vast majority won't and i think um um well i mean it's just not unlike the telecom companies well we'll, we'll talk about that but I in think, your scenario yeah but i think in just to complete that the thought around this conversion right remember where we are so so we tried it the utilities way right that's what rev was right so there was a, a junction where they could have you know, taken Catherine and John Wellinghoff's paper that, you know, allowed for an independent distribution um, sort of system operator, and they didn't do that. They let the utilities run it. Five years later, they still haven't put the rules in place by which to run it, so it's they're delaying, obviously. And so now you see folks moving 
in different legislative directions. So in DC, they have a DER authority that they're trying to pass, which would actually remove the authority from the Public Service Commission, as well as the utility, into a third party because they don't trust either, right? And so, so that's one model. The other model is um, you can have auction platforms. And so there are several startups now in California who are basically setting up auction platforms um, where a municipal utility or co-op, which is where you would really start it because they don't have the rate base um, you know, sort of desires, um, would basically just auction non-wire alternatives on every single decision. So every single distribution system decision would just become a set of specs that would go onto an auction platform and someone would say, yeah, I can meet those specs for this price, right? And then, then the utility would oversee it from a approval standpoint, but not from a, um, a consideration standpoint, right? So it would be automatically approved by the auction platform. The utility would just be able to double check to make sure that they are a credible company, that they actually exist, that they have what they say they have, but they're not allowed to actually make a decision between this option and that option because people don't trust them to make that decision. And so you then, and so that's already being pitched to many municipal, municipalities and rural co-ops, and one of them will probably take it this year, and then you know five years from now, a lot of them will be using it. And the reason for that is because rates are going up, right? Rates are going up so fast because, I mean, National Grid yesterday told us that they couldn't find a single non-wires alternative that worked in their territory. And I was like, oh, really? That's interesting. <laughs> and so, so then, you know, so, so that, that is happening. And as that happens, by 2040, you will see most utility companies become this wires company that Catherine was talking about. And a few utility companies will become the sort of Verizon and actually decide to sort of make that full transition. So you deal with a lot of different regulators in different states. Um, they're notoriously slow and behind technological change. It's kind of absurd in the regulatory environment to project out to 2040 because these people are often thinking on two year or four year mm -hmm. time cycles. But does anything in the way that regulators are changing how they think about this stuff leave you optimistic about a multi-decade time frame in terms of the decisions that they're making? Yeah, I would look at Hawaii right now. There are, and the regulators are really pushing that. So they have a performance-based rates proposal out. The electric utility has keeps coming back with new plans that the regulators say, no, that's good, not good enough. They're going to go to 100% renewables. They're going to do it in a way, because that's really their only choice right now. And I, I think that's very much pushed by the regulators. And you'll see, watch what happens there. And they can prove, even though it's a very specific example, they can prove that it's possible. And I think others are starting to think about that too. Okay, so let's go to the business environment. We alluded to this when we talked about which utilities are going to exist and why and how. Unpack that a little bit more and then just talk about the broader business world. Are we gonna finally see a renewable energy super major? Um, how will oil and gas companies play in this electrified world? And what will utilities look like? Paint that world for us. Yeah, well, let's start with the uh, renewable energy super majors, right? I mean, I think you already have them, right? So, so the super majors today are sort of next era and, you know, probably a few other folks, right? I think um, the, the definition of a super major in um, the oil and gas industry are the folks who have the lowest possible desire to take risk, right? So it wasn't any of the Exxons and the BPs and the Chevrons that actually 
you know, innovated on the fracking side, even though everyone knew what fracking was back in the 70s. Um, they allowed all these other independent oil companies to sort of make the moves to actually get all that stuff done. And they're only entering the Permian and some of the other places now, right? Like, I mean, in fact, investments they made sort of five years ago were all sort of written off. So you're seeing the integrated oil companies come in today. So the same thing's true, right? Nextera is not innovating on community solar or on you know some of these other things. They're waiting for other people to do it. And then when those assets become available for them to buy at five and a half percent returns, they're going in and buying them at five and a half percent returns and sticking it into their yield co and then providing um, you know dividends to to folks. And that provides a liquidity function for the smaller players, right? So that after four years of aggregating all these assets, they have a natural buyer for those assets after they've completed the aggregation, right? And so that's that's, I think, how the super major process works. I don't think it's, I think people thought of it as this sort of superhero, but that's sort of not how that particular process works. So the super major is not going to be the, as David Crane once called it, the Amazon or the Google or the Apple of clean energy. Yeah, it's going to no, be a much more boring business. They're exactly the opposite, right? They're, <laughs> they, are, they are people who hate risk, right? BP, Shell, Exxon, those guys hate risk. They actually are, they have like a corporate safety division that kills this idea. They have a CFO's office that doesn't like that idea. Like they work hard to reduce risk, right? That, that's their job and that's what shareholders buy into. And so that is what Next Era and, you know, like some of the other folks like, you know, Clean Line and some of the other folks that like have, you know, um, um, emerged as multi-billion dollar players want to do. But how about companies like Enel and Total and Engie and Centrica and traditional European utilities that are coming in and buying all these new companies and providing new Well, they're services? the same, right? I mean, if you look at where their revenues and their profits come from, it's from selling natural gas or from, you know, having 160 million meters across the world like, you know, Enel does or whatever. And then they have an innovation budget, right? So BP just put $100 million into an innovation budget. Centrica just put $100 million into an innovation budget. Like this group has, and it sounds like a lot of money for us, but from their market caps perspective and their revenues perspective, it's isolating risk to this section, right? Here are the people who get to buy companies, and yeah, they're making a big splash, right? Shell's the same, right? The exploration side of Shell is doing $18 billion a year. The new energies part of Shell is doing a billion dollars a year. And so, yeah, I think that they're very serious about doing stuff, but does that mean that I think that they are looking to replace their existing business? Remember when you say Amazon, right? Amazon is basically just AWS. All the stuff that you buy on Amazon makes Jeff Bezos no money, right? Like, and so when you look at the earnings of Amazon, they are basically a server company, and they sell that stuff for 70% gross margins, and AWS makes tons of money. But on this side, they're like, look, you just bought this great book from me. Look how wonderful I am. So that's how they get into your business, right? So they completely disrupted their business from selling books to selling server capacity, right? The same thing's true with like Apple or other people, right? Apple said, we're making these, these things that, you know, you can listen to music on, right? The iPod. And then they suddenly said, you know what? We're going to shut down the iPod division and replace them with iPhones. And like, and then the music part is just a feature of the phone, but they've totally disrupted their previous business. Those are things that the energy companies don't want to do. They do not want to disrupt their 
existing business. Those are cash cow businesses that they want to leave in place. And, generate, and remember David Crane said that on stage. He was, we asked him, why didn't you sell your coal plants when you're NRG? He's like, well, I was making $2 billion a year off of them. I didn't, want to, I didn't want to get rid of that. Well, you know, that makes it really hard to have one foot in the past and one foot in the future, which is why, going to your utility question, it's going to be very hard for them to make the transition. The only way to make this transition is to allow the other part of the business to die on the vine, right? And if you're not willing to let the other part of the business die on the vine, you cannot boldly go into the future. It's not possible to do both, right? Like you can't, you can't on the one hand say, like, I want this group to continue to succeed and do what they're doing and protect the regulatory monopoly and all the things that you want to do. And on the other hand say, like, I want to actually be more prosumer and I want to figure out how to help consumers on the end, right? Like that, those two things are in, in conflict. Yeah, and I don't see how investors let them do that. They bought the stock with a certain set of expectations about what the company would be and what it should do. And we're talking about such a dramatic transformation. The companies, public companies that have attempted this have fallen flat because investors hated the plan. It's not what they wanted nor expected when they bought the stock. Yeah, but remember, globally, investors see the writing on the wall on climate, and, and everybody else is going in the same direction on this. So I don't think Enel's playing around. I mean, they're saying, we're taking a loss on our coal plants, we're going to shut them down, and we're going we're gonna to build a business that's clean. Centric is saying, yeah, we're going to try to get as much as we can out of, the, out of making the gas side more efficient and, con and consumers reduce use, but in the end, they're like, we're going to eventually have to give up our gas business. I don't think they're messing around with it because the rest of the world believes that we have to go off of fossil. So let's move on, and we'll just quickly talk about the grid mix from now until 2040 and the implications for managing the resources today. So I just looked at some basic global scenarios and went through some of the top ones, uh, BP and Shell scenarios, IEA, and then the Bloomberg New Energy Outlook, which follows a similar format. So they're comparable. Uh, on the ambitious side, BNEF projects by 2040, we'll see over half of our electricity supply globally come from renewable energy. Uh, on the low end, the BP uh, says that renewables will only make up 30% of the electricity mix. So we have a range of scenarios. IEA is closer to the BP scenario. If you actually look at all the scenarios, nuclear is probably going to make up only about 9 to 10% of electricity supply globally, what it, make, what, what it is today. Most of those plants are going to get built in Asia, probably very few in Europe and the United States. So uh, what do you think about those range of scenarios in terms of what the grid mix looks like globally first? And then we can work our way down into the United States. Yeah, and ARENA, the International Renewable Energy Association, says you know even more. I mean, they have a roadmap to 85% renewables on the power side by 2050. Um, and if you look at EIA, you get the other end of the spectrum, right. even lower than the than BP. Um, so. It's really hard to make predictions, obviously, and a lot of those are in a vacuum outside of where policy is going. So it will depend on what policy triggers we have. It depends on what kind of leadership we have. It depends on investment, like where the corporates are going. Corporates are going to have far more power than a lot of even state governments are going to have. Um, I think getting hung up on where are we going to be, to me, is less important than setting a trajectory of where do we want to be. So what what is it that we want to get to? and 
you know, then let's worry about the last 20% when we get to 80%. <laughs> like, let's not get hung up on, like, what are, what are we going to, because I think by then, <laughs> I'm not getting in a Twitter war. Um, so uh, one thing I've been involved in is I'm a co-chair of this World Economic Forum Council on Advanced Energy Technology. And it has people all over the world talking about what do we need to do by 2030 and what kind of technologies do we need to promote. And we, we listen to a lot of presentations, a whole day of presentations and pitches of like new technology. And in the end, all of these global leaders said, we have what we need to, when we get to 2030, we will have almost everything we need or we'll be on the path to have everything we need. So what we need to do is double down on what we've got. We need to accelerate. And what is it gonna take to do that? So I, I, that doesn't address whether BP is right, but I think nobody knows what's right. No, they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you used to work for BP, by the way. Yeah, I did. But I, you're still uh, skeptical. Well, I'm not skeptical. They're wrong. Like, <laughs> like no, look, we're we're on this we're on an exponential growth curve, and I think a lot of people just don't really understand what that means exactly. Like, I just think that as as battery storage prices come down, which everyone, BNF and everybody else has said that they are, and as you have alternative forms of storage like thermal storage and compressed air storage and you know mechanical storage and other things. Um, it, it, it's pretty easy to get to 75% clean energy from a grid perspective, and so I think we will. So, you know, I don't see any barriers to getting to 75% um, clean energy by, um, by, by 2040. And, and then, frankly, everybody wants it. So final question about the resource mix. A wide range of variation in terms of what natural gas looks like. IEA thinks it'll make up 45% of power, power supply. BNEF thinks 16%. So a massive shift. Obviously, in a world with much cheaper batteries, renewables plus storage can compete with a lot of different forms of uh, gas generation. Where do you think gas will get pushed in a world with super cheap batteries and renewables? Yeah, eventually it's going to have to go away. I mean, if for the long-term press prospects of our planet, it, we have to get completely off of right, fossil fuels. Right, but by fuels. 2040? Well, maybe not by 2040, but if you look at something that's being built today, by 2050 it's going to be nearing retirement, right? So we have to think about what are we putting in place today, and by then it will be starting to, it'll be like the coal, the coal plants. So that you will think just gas be, it faces a similar future as, yeah, as yeah. coal? By 2040, gas will be in a similar position that coal is today? No, no, it's different. So all central gas plants will be out of business by probably 2035, right? Like not even 2040. And so there's no reason to have a central gas plant period in this country, right? And so, so gas will move to distributed. Right, so people will have microgen units yeah. throughout the Northeast where they have five kilowatt sort of home units where they're getting heat and, you know, and so now you have much higher efficiencies, right? Now you're burning gas at like 70, 80, 90% efficiency depending on the, load, the, the heat load on the other side. Um, and you'll see that transition happen very quickly, right? Because if, like when you look at the capacity markets in PJM and then non-capacity markets in Texas, like they're getting like they're just getting destroyed, right? So like uh, these gas plants cannot live on these merchant revenues for much longer. And if gas prices ever go up to the American Gas Association's target, which is $5 a million BTU, 
then it destroys the economics, right? I mean, gas doesn't work on the margin at five bucks a million BTU. So, so like, I think you'll see a ton of gas in 2040, but it'll all be distributed. I also think something that we have not talked about, but I think all of those plants are going to be able to be replaced by seasonal storage. Mm -hmm. So seasonal storage will be able to come in, make renewables baseload, and then you don't need those plants anymore. I think tomorrow we'll hear from the folks at Form Energy, so I think there will be some talk about seasonal storage at this event. We unfortunately only have about five minutes left. You're getting to witness how long we talk for. We usually record for about an hour and a half, two hours, and then cut it down to 45 minutes, but we're trying to be concise here. <laughs> so I want to go through the news circuit really quickly, and then I want to get our free electrons. Let's be very brief with the news circuit. First up, DOE announced this week that it's putting $26 million behind marine and hydrokinetic technologies. Uh, marine energy has always been uh, a distant hope, and it will, many critics say it always will be. Will we see marine energy technologies take off? I mean, huge potential. Really a lot of barriers, though. Permitting. Turns out the ocean is a very hostile place. Yeah, but even just permitting and fishing, there's... I think they've got some big barriers to overcome. No. <laughs> uh, technological or regulatory? What's the biggest hurdle? Both. It's a terrible technology and a terrible regulatory. Like, like, like I mean, it's just serious. Like, putting something in the middle of the ocean and expecting it to last for 25 years is the dumbest thing ever. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so in January, Trump's DOE announced new rules that would strictly limit nuclear uh, tech sharing arrangements, and that put a crimp in uh, this partnership between TerraPower and the state-owned energy company, uh, nuclear agency in China. So they're struggling to figure out a new, find a new partner to build another plant. Are, how important are geopolitics to capital-intensive startups, particularly in the nuclear industry, where we probably have a lot of folks in this room? Trade policy is important to everybody who does anything right now because there are tariffs on everything. Anything that uses steel is impacted by this. So I think that's that may be one piece of a sector that's impacted, but everybody is. Yeah, this is not about geopolitics. This is about, like, nuclear. It is very obvious to anyone who's read a book that nuclear can only be done by governments. They cannot be done by the private sector. The run-up of nuclear power in this country was done by the U.S. government. The run-up in France was done by the French government. The run-up of nuclear in China has been doing, done, done by the Chinese government. So if we want nuclear in this country, the U.S. government has to step up and say, we are going to build nuclear power plants in this country. The notion that Bill Gates or any other private sector entity can actually revive the nuclear industry is fanciful thinking, right? And it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Uh, final one, Duke Energy wants to spend $76 million on electric vehicle charging, wants to own those chargers, rate-base them. We've seen a lot of fights around rate-basing electric vehicle in infrastructure. What's going to happen there, and should a utility like Duke be allowed to do this? What will happen and what should happen are going to be maybe two very different things. <laughs> I mean, I want competition. I want customers to have choice. I don't want the utility to just own everything. So I would love to see third parties do more of it and have competition and not have them own everything. But they're going to want to own everything. And you've actually been working on this, as far as I can tell, Jigger, right? You've kind of come up with a compromise solution in California. Yeah. So, I mean, as you know, I'm pretty much against the utilities rate-basing EV charging infrastructure just because I think they'll put them all in the wrong place. But, um, but 
but I think what we what we did in California, which was smart, was basically anyone who wants to put in a charger can put it in wherever they want, and the utility will rate base the connection of the charger, right? So if they have to go 200 yards, if they have to upgrade the service, if they have to do any of those things to accommodate the fast charger, they get to rate base all those costs, right? Which I think is fair, and so I think that's a good. I think that's a good compromise and one that we'll be, I think, rolling out across the country. Great. So in 2040, when you're on your rocking chair thinking back to 2019, when there were things that excited you, that you know, just really fueled you, what, what, what are you going to be talking about? What are you going to be reminiscing about? Catherine, what is your free electron? Oh, I thought you were really talking about like talking about my grandkids or something. Um, okay. <laughs> my, my, um, okay, my free electron is, so Burger King did a blind t- taste test of a, their Whopper and an, imbo- an impossible Whopper. And no one could tell the difference. Now, it could, impossible, impossible, impossible meaning uh, a meat substitute. Yes. A uh, plant-based substitute. Um, and it could be that that means the Impossible Whopper is as awesome as a Whopper, or it could mean that they both taste like cardboard. But in any case, they've decided that in 59 stores in St. Louis, which is also impressive that St. Louis has 59 Burger Kings, um, they're going to sell Impossible Whoppers. And it's only going to be an, a dollar more per burger. And, and eventually, it may not be any difference. They have 7,200 stores around the country, Burger King does. That will be huge. I think people are going to start getting used to it. I mean, Burger King has always offered a veggie burger, which is like the, which I, I've gotten on Cardboard. occasion. Yeah, pretty bad. It was pretty bad. Um, but Carl Jr.'s is teaming up with Beyond Meat. I'm, I'm loving this move. And they claim that it uses 87% less water, 96% less land, 89% fewer greenhouse gases, and 92% less aquatic pollutants. So I'm all in. I'm good. I want to believe that this is going to have a big impact. <laughs> but I can remember in 2004, I went to a press conference with then uh, HHS Secretary Tommy Thompson. And he sat down with... McDonald's executives, and they announced this brilliant new health food initiative, and they were going to roll out all these great salads and sandwiches that were supposedly healthy, and no one bought them. No one bought them, and everyone thought this was going to be a major national initiative, and it just didn't work. And so but that's because I'm, you go to McDonald's to buy a burger and fries. You go to Burger King to buy a burger and fries. And if you can buy a burger that's essentially the same as the other burger you'd buy, then why not? Well, it's it also might bring more customers to McBurger King if they knew they could get an Impossible Burger. If they could get me there. So, Jigger, what are you going to be reminiscing about in 2040? What is exciting you today? Well... The funny thing I saw yesterday was that Patagonia is not going to sell its vest like I'm wearing today to so, so for people those they don't see, like. For those who can't see, he's got a vest on with the Patagonia logo and then his Generate Capital logo. Yeah, they don't want their logo next to firms that do oil and gas or finance oil and gas or whatever else. So I thought that was pretty so awesome. So you're in the clear. Yeah, I, and I got under the wire with mine, so that's good. Um, you know, I, though the thing I was going to talk about was I read this article the other day which... Um, which uh, surprised me. So that aluminum cans are not actually fully recycled. They're downcycled. And so they, like, so Boeing or car companies or Apple even for their, like, you know, metallic finish aluminum iMacs or whatever, MacBooks, don't use recycled aluminum. 
And so recycled aluminum is actually used for lesser aluminum applications. And I was just shocked by that. And so it like rocked my world. I thought we figured that out in recycling. And now with the National Sword Program and China not taking all of our plastic and all this sort of stuff, I, you know, being here at MIT and thinking about all the tech we could be working on, it feels like we've made no progress in 35 years in garbage. And we all should like reinvigorate ourselves around how we actually do extended producer responsibility and how we actually take all this waste that we are famous for creating here in America and converting it into more useful things. And so I would challenge all of you yeah. to do that. How about you, Stephen? What's your free electron? That clap is nice. Maybe we should just end there. <laughs> no, I... Um, I woke up this morning and I'm actually working on a separate show now that deals with future scenarios and the evolution of technology and how businesses integrate those technologies and invest in them. And I was reading all about IBM's Watson and I checked out my news feed this morning and it turns out, according to some new reporting, that IBM's Watson is really bad at predicting health outcomes and predicting what's going on with people. And so in 2011, after Watson famously won in a game of Jeopardy, everyone thought, oh my gosh, this is going to be the new doctor, right? This new IBM AI supercomputer in the sky is going to be, you know, circumventing doctors and coming up with these, you know, important health predictions. And over the last eight years, it hasn't actually been that good at it, according to new uh, results that are out. So we talk about multi-decade timeframes, it's inevitable that our world is going to become more intelligent. Artificial intelligence is happening all around us, beneath the surface. But oftentimes, the big things that we assume are going to happen, of course, don't. And they have very strange, winding pathways to adoption. And uh, I just thought that that was really important to consider as we talk about what may happen over the next two decades. Yeah, are and you, it turns out that learning trivia and going to medical school are two really different things. <laughs> are you questioning your deposit on your autonomous vehicle now? <laughs> well, that is it, folks. We are the Energy Gang. Thank you so much for having us here. And that's going to do it for this week. Thanks to MIT for inviting us to the show. If you have a prediction for a scenario within the next couple of decades, if you think we missed something, hit us up on social media and let us know what you think is going to happen by 2040. As always, find us anywhere you get podcasts, and we will catch you next week. I'm Stephen Lacey with Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. This is The Energy Gang. <laughs>